Good morning. So good to be here with you all. Uh, I've said this before, but anytime I get an opportunity to be here uh, in Fullerton with you, it just makes me glad. I'm so glad to be here with you. So glad to be able to preach the word this morning. <clears throat> well, lately I have been listening to a lot of podcasts. Uh, it's one of the ways I've been spending my commute. One of the ways I've been spending downtime is listening to podcasts. The internet can be a great place and it can be a terrible place. Uh, I've been seeing the greatness of it in podcasts lately. It's been so fun to kind of live in that world. And my favorite podcast lately has been an American military history podcast that focuses on the American Revolution. Now, I'm sure that is just absolutely exciting and interesting to all of you, uh, that you were just overwhelmed with gladness that I would bring this up. But it really has been great for me. I've loved it. It has been... Uh, Less great for my wife, Raylynn. Uh, and the reason why is because since I've been listening to this podcast, I'm hearing lots of cool things and, and really a lot of interesting bits of trivia. And so I've begun to share this trivia with my wife pretty often to the point where it's beginning to grate against her and she is growing tired very quickly. For instance, did you guys know that George Washington... <laughs> Uh, most people consider George Washington to have, to have had such a good arm that if he would have been able to throw a curveball, they say he could have played in the major leagues nowadays. Or did you know that during the American Revolution, Maine was largely unmapped? I think that's interesting. Uh, well, I'll stop there and not bore you with these facts. But this has been really interesting. One of the things that I've learned about the American Revolution as I've listened to this podcast is a lot of what happened during this war was American troops, British troops, everybody got around, got together and did a whole lot of nothing. They sat around waiting for people to tell them what to do. There was a ton of downtime waiting for instruction, waiting for orders, waiting to find out if they should go left or if they should go right or if they should go straight. They needed instruction constantly. This was particularly true of one man named Thomas Gage. Thomas Gage was the military governor of the state of Massachusetts when the war broke out, uh, especially in the months leading up to the war. He was centered in Boston, and his job was to really make sure that the Americans did not get out of line. So he had to keep them on a tight leash. The problem was, is this didn't really work out all that well. The Americans made his life incredibly difficult. They sabotaged him every chance they can get. They spied upon him. They made his plans known. And they generally harassed him to the point where he nearly broke down. He developed such a significant case of anxiety that it said about him that he was almost always bordering on a panic attack. And with that being said, this was written of Thomas Gage. What Gage needed more than anything else was orders from home telling him what to do. What he needed more than anything was orders from home telling him what to do. I find that so interesting because more than anything, that means more than troops, more than resources, more than love, more than coffee, more than anything, what he needed was instruction, commands from home, commands from the crown. Well, this morning we find ourselves in a very similar situation as Gage. We 
are in need of instruction. We are in need of orders, of commands. We need to be directed in how to live out this alien life, this Christian life. What in the world does it mean for us to live as Christians in our current cultural, political, and social climate? There's so many things going on. How are we to live for Christ? How are we to seek to honor Christ in our day-by-day lives? We need to be instructed. Well, our situation is very much unlike Gage's though, for our king, the king of kings, has graciously and gloriously spoken. He has, he has revealed himself and he has revealed his plans. He's revealed his instruction. He has revealed his plan of redemption. He has spoke. And so today we are going to continue in our study of 1 Peter, and we are going to see some specific instruction from our king. And we'll see this instruction as it relates to suffering in this world. What are we to do? What in the world are we to do? Where are we to go? How should we go as Christians? That'll be our main point and the main content of our time spent in the word this morning. And then we're gonna spend some time considering why we might be instructed in that way. So what and why? Pretty simple. And we're going to see this from 1 Peter chapter 4. If you would turn with me in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 4. So 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So what is our instruction from our king this morning? I think we see this in verse one. Our instruction is that we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ to suffer for doing good. We're to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ to suffer for doing good. Verse one, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So chapter four begins with this incredibly important word, therefore, which is pointing us back to what has come before and letting us know that everything we're about to focus on flows out of what has come previously. What has come previously? In verse one, we see that Christ suffered. Therefore, since Christ suffered, so we're being oriented back to 1 Peter chapter three, verse 18 in particular, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might live in the spirit. We're being pointed back to the gospel truth of the previous chapter. Christ suffered and died for hopelessly sinful humanity. The righteous one suffered for us, the unrighteous ones, that we might become the righteousness of God. 
And so our passage flows out of the indicatives of the gospel. We can do the things that we're being instructed in because the reality of the gospel, we have been saved from the power and the penalty of sin in Christ. So what are we to do in light of the gospel? How are we to live lives to the glory of God? What does it mean to be in Christ? Verse one tells us, in light of Christ's suffering in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That is our charge. That is our instruction. The king has spoken. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So what is this saying to us? Well, first we are to arm ourselves. We are to arm ourselves. This is military terminology. Here there's an implication that we are in the midst of a battle. We're preparing for war this, it wouldn't be inappropriate for our minds to go to a place like Ephesians 6 and to think of the putting on the armor of God. We're in the midst of something and therefore we're to armor up. We're to make sure that we're prepared and ready to go into this battle. So how are we to arm ourselves? How are we to prepare for this battle? We arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. That's what's being communicated to us here in these verses. That's what it means that we're to possess the same sort of thinking that Christ possessed. We're to possess the same sort of resolve that led Christ to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him. Wayne Grudem, uh, in teasing this idea out, points us back to verse or to chapter three, verse 17, and says that to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ is to be convinced that it is better to do right, better to do right in light of the gospel, in a gospel-informed sort of way, because of the gospel, because we seek to live to the glory of God, it is better to do right and suffer for it than to do wrong. We're to be convinced that this is actually the best way that we can live. Why? Because this is God's will for us. Because God is the faithful and good God who brings about trials that we might have our faith strengthened. He is a good and faithful God in all that he does. And so we're to be convinced that it is better to do good and suffer for it than to do evil. And so therefore, we resolve ourselves to the mindset that it's better to suffer for living to the glory of God by speaking the truth in love, by fighting against sin, by giving self-sacrificial, by being hospitable, We're to do these things, we're to suffer in these ways, we're to arm ourselves this way of thinking, to suffer for doing good rather than to submit to doing what is wrong. Christ submitted himself to suffering in the flesh and now we are to arm ourselves with the same mind, the same holy vocation. We're to arm ourselves with the resolve of Christ to suffer in light of his substituting death upon the cross. So this idea reminds me of Tim Keller Tim Keller is a famous uh, pastor, preacher in New York City, very influential. And uh, over the years, uh, he's often referred to the idea that you can tell that he is not prepared for a sermon as much as he would like to be, uh, because you could tell when that's the case, because often what he does is just quote a whole bunch of C.S. Lewis. And, And I find that so interesting. It kind of seems like a humble brag now that I think about it, because yeah, it's amazing that he would just be able to quote C.S. Lewis when he's not prepared. Um, but 
he, he does this, he's able to quote C.S. Lewis in this way because over the course of his life, he has spent so much of his time invested in reading C.S. Lewis. He's read every single thing that C.S. Lewis has ever written or that's in print, and he's read these things dozens of times. He's mulled over them. He's turned them over in his mind such that now, if he's rambling around on the stage, unsure what he's wanting to say or how to communicate something, C.S. Lewis just comes freely to his lips, and he's able to communicate in that way. It's gotten to the point where people will ask Tim Keller what C.S. Lewis thinks about a topic or what he thinks about this thing over here. And these are things maybe that C.S. Lewis never spoke about. So like the internet, things that are modern. And Tim Keller will just confidently say, this is what, what C.S. Lewis would say about that. Oh, this is what C.S. Lewis believed on that. And, and that's just so striking to me because it seems so brazen and almost even arrogant that Tim Keller would be willing to say that, t- that C.S. Lewis would speak or feel this way about this topic when he had never done that. How in the world could he confidently say these things? That seems so strange to me. Well, he's able to do that because over the course of his life, he has spent so much time with C.S. Lewis. He's in, he's Uh, dwelled with C.S. Lewis so much. He's immersed himself in C.S. Lewis to the extent that he's now able to think like C.S. Lewis. He's developed the mind of C.S. Lewis. He sees the world through the lens of C.S. Lewis. I feel like we see something like this happening often in the context of marriage. I see this in my own marriage. And so no doubt this happens even more uh, for those of you who've been married for some time. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was coming back from the South Bay along the 91, and I got home, and my wife, Raylin, said, did you bring me a donut? And I was like, well, no. I, I, didn't, I was thinking, I didn't say anything about donuts. Like, why would she bring this up? Why would she ask me if I brought her a donut? And the reason why is because she knows me well enough, and she knows the route that I take when I come home on the 91 from the South Bay goes right past a Krispy Kreme donut, uh, donut store. And she knows that I lack the self-control to pull into that donut shop. Uh, she knows that every single time I go by that I'm going to end up there. And so she knew that donuts uh, were on my mind that night. And so when I got home, I had to my shame tell her, no, I did not get her a donut. I, on the other hand, got two donuts <laughs> and a chocolate milk. And, and it's funny because as I'm sitting here, I've I, Caleb and Jordan have both uh, went with me on that drive before, and both times we stopped at that exact Krispy Kreme. So, yeah, uh, how was Raylynn, my wife, able to know this? Because she knows me. She spent time around me. She knows what I'm like, and she, in some way, has developed my mind. And this happens in the context of marriage. Well, Peter tells us that we are to arm ourselves in a similar way, but we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We're to so know Christ, to be so immersed in Christ, to be so familiar with Christ that we think the way that he does and we resolve the way that he does. If we take our cues from Keller in this, then we can see that one way that we might do this is by immersing ourselves in the word. Keller didn't just scan the screw tape letters and read the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe and say, I know everything there is to know about C.S. Lewis and therefore I can now have the mind of C.S. Lewis. No, he read everything. 
He poured over everything. He immersed himself in everything over and over and over again. After years and years and years, he was able to develop the mind of C.S. Lewis. And in a similar way, we're to be people who develop the mind of Christ by pouring ourselves into his word, by diving into his word, by turning over it over and over and over again, by memorizing, by wrestling with it, not by occasionally going and skimming through chapters. No, we immerse ourselves in the word. And as we do this, we will develop the mind of Christ. We will be people who become more and more convinced that it is better to do good and suffer for it than to do evil. This will have a practical implication on our life. We will begin to take seriously the commands of Christ and we will seek to suffer in the flesh as we seek to obey So lead us to give self-sacrificially of our time, our energy, our money, our emotions. This will lead us to actually do certain things to the glory of God. As we spend time in the word, as we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, we will begin to change. We will live to Christ. We are to be a people who have the mind of Christ and are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. And so Peter urges us in light of Christ's suffering in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same sort of mind, with the same way of thinking. And so here, Peter tells us what we are to do. He's giving us the king's instruction. Arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. But now he wants to shift gears and and graciously tell us why. Why? I think God is so good in, in not just simply giving us commands, but telling us why, grounding it in various things. And so we're gonna look at three different things, three reasons why we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. First, We arm ourselves for this is a way to kill sin. We arm ourselves for this is a way to kill sin. We see this in verses one and two. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so as we continue here in chapter four, we begin to see the why of our opening phrase. Why do we arm ourselves with the resolve of Christ to suffer for doing good rather than evil? Because to suffer in the flesh is to cease from sin. Peter isn't saying that we'll be perfect here, that is, if we do this, that somehow we will no longer be sinners. No, what he's saying is, is that if we arm ourselves with this mind to suffer for doing good, even though it might mean physical, emotional, real pain, that this is a means of grace from God to kill sin in the believer's life. Verse two says that Christians are to live out their lives, not for the desires of the flesh, but for the will of God. And this can progressively happen more and more due to us arming ourselves with the mind of Christ to suffer for doing good. So these verses tell us that to say, I will suffer in light of the gospel, even though it might be hard, is to make a clean break with sin. It's to make a clean break with sin. In other words, it's to say that I value the reproach of Christ over and against the treasures of Egypt or anything else. This can only be done through the spirit. This is a spirit wrought sort of thing. And and as we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ and as the spirit begins to work in us, we will see a morally strengthening effect. We'll be built up. We'll be transformed. We'll be changed. 
One of the ways this happens is I think we gain a greater clarity and perspective. We're able to see things as they truly are. For instance, we could see sin as it truly is. That thing that is grievous to God, that thing that enslaves, that binds us, that leads to death. And at the same time, we're able to see Christ more clearly for who he is as savior and Lord, where there's satisfaction and joy forevermore. And so we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ and the spirit works in us as we suffer in light of our arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. And we're built up, we're strengthened, we're made more and more like Christ. As I consider these verses, I can't help but rejoice over you. My role here at Grace uh, allows me to hear lots of stories. Um, and, and over the course of the past several years, I've heard so many stories that make me aware that this sort of thing largely characterizes the people of grace. By and large, the people of grace are arming, our, arming themselves with the mind of Christ. That is what you are doing. You are opening yourselves up to suffering for doing good rather than for evil. And it is a beautiful sort of thing. This, this can be seen so clearly in so many different ways. Project Hope is a great example of this though, a really clear example. Uh, so many people in Project Hope willingly and gladly take children from the foster system uh, into their families. They, they adopt children into their families. They bring in children into their homes, even though it is difficult. They're opening themselves up to a real suffering and they endure that. They arm themselves with the mind of Christ that they might endure that, that they might suffer for good rather than allowing these children to continue without being cared for. We see this in the fact that so many of you are so clearly and obviously battling against sin. You're confessing sin. You're seeking to suffer as you fight off sin. And so you live in communities of confession and repentance. We see this in the way that so many of you link arms with brothers and sisters who are in terrible, grievous situations, who are in crisis. Uh, you're caring for those who have lost loved ones. You're caring for those who are in financial crisis or stress. So many of you are arming yourselves with the mind of Christ to suffer for doing good rather than evil. And it is a beautiful thing. What is also incredibly beautiful about this is, is from my perspective, I could so clearly see that God is using these things to make you more and more to the image of Christ. He is using these things to strengthen you and build you up and put, death to, or put sin to death in your lives. This is what the Lord does. This is a means of grace in the believer's life. And so if this is who you are, if, if you're one of these people that's fighting the good fight of faith in this, and so many of you are, I just wanna say, keep going. Excel still more in this. Continue to fight the good fight of faith. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. For do, in doing this, you are making a clean break with sin. You're being purified. You're being refined. You're being made like Christ. So keep going. And if this doesn't characterize you, if, if you're not one of the people implicated in what I'm talking about right here, then I so urge you to get to know the people around you. Once again, I'm familiar enough, I believe, with this congregation to know that there are so many glorious stories that testify to the truth of this passage. And so I would love for you to be talking to one another, to hear the stories of grace in such a way that you are being built up and you're being reminded that, oh yes, God really does work in this way. It really is better to suffer for, to uh, arm ourselves with the mind of Christ to suffer for doing good rather than evil. God really does use that for our ultimate and chief good. 
So arm yourselves with the mind of Christ by sharing with one another, getting to know with one another, hearing and learning the stories of grace. And so as you're inevitably tasked with the choice to suffer for doing good or to do evil, choose the good. Choose to arm yourselves with the resolve of Christ for in doing so, you are saying that Christ is better than sin and you will be strengthened. And so why do we arm ourselves with the resolve of Christ to suffer for doing good? Because by suffering in this way, sin is put to death. But this point becomes especially important as we move on to our next reason why, or the next why that is provided. Why do we arm ourselves? We arm ourselves for we have sinned enough. We arm ourselves for we have sinned enough. We see this in verse three. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So here we see why this previous point is so important. Why must we die to sin? Why is it good that uh, arming ourselves in the mind of Christ to suffer for doing good is a means of grace? Why must we die? Because we have already sinned enough. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. Gentiles here is not referring to non-Jewish folk. It's referring to those who are not Christians, those who do not know Christ. And so what do Gentiles or non-Christians do? What characterizes these people? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Ultimately, sin characterizes these people. A lack of faith characterizes these people. But... We are not Gentiles if we are in Christ. If we go back to verse one, we see that we are living out of the once for all sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. What does that mean practically? It means that we are to live out our remaining day living for God's will rather than for the passions of the flesh. In other words, we have lived sufficiently sinful lives. And so whether you have sinned every sin that is listed here in verse three, or whether the worst sin you've ever committed is a white lie, then you have sinned enough. Whether you were saved yesterday and your life has been an entire life of sinning in the most egregious ways, or whether you were saved at the age of three and you've, and you've lived a largely moral life since, you have sinned enough. You have drank your personal cup of sin sufficiently. Sin is not for you anymore. I find this to be so incredibly uh, encouraging and um, and comforting for me is I consider my own battle with sin and my own fight for faith. I am a grievous sinner, a wretched sinner who is in desperate need of grace day by day. Nevertheless, I'm like many of you and I have not committed a lot of what we would often call the big sins or the, the really terrible sins. And, and over the course of my life, I've seen that as a result I've been a person who's been tempted at times with a grass is greener on the other side mentality that, that maybe sin actually is a good thing. And so sin will be really enticing to me at times, but our passage tells us what so many who have lived egregiously sinful lives already know, no matter how much or how little of you sinned, it is enough 
We do not need an exciting personal testimony to tell us this. No, we have the sure testimony of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. We don't need to live all of this stuff out to know it. Christ has told us. We have God's word that speaks sufficiently on this matter. The life of sin is one that is full of angst, emptiness, and despair. There might be aspects that seem attractive or aspects that might be fun for a moment, but a lot, the life of sin is a life of bondage, decay, and death, and it is not for us. Christ is better. And so we are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, the resolve of Christ to suffer for doing good. For the time of sinning is past. That life has been buried. This past week at La Mirada, we did a baptism service. And, and part of what baptism is, is we, we say that a person has been buried with Christ in baptism. We lift them out of the water and we say, raised to walk in newness of life. And as Christians, we are not called to be those people who stayed buried. We don't stay under the water. Rather, we've been raised out that we might go and walk by the Spirit, walk to live in such a way that honors Christ. We are raised to walk in newness of life. Sin is not for us. We have sinned enough. And so, so far we've been kind of dealing with an umbrella of suffering that we're to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ that we might suffer for doing good. And so this includes all different types of suffering. For instance, the sort of suffering that comes as a result of fighting against sin or the sort of suffering that results in, in taking on difficult situations for the sake of the gospel, uh, forgiving self-sacrificially. But here we are actually gonna move towards a more specific form of suffering. And we're gonna see another reason why we're to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Why do we arm ourselves? We arm ourselves for we will be mocked. We arm ourselves for we will be mocked. And we see this in verses four through six. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So here once again, we see the result of our break with sin due to arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. When we break with sin or when sin is put to death, this leads others to be surprised and then they malign us. For Peter's readers, this list of sins in verse three were fairly commonplace. While maybe not every single person in a society was committing these sins regularly, this was a normal part of culture. This was a normal part of what it meant to, to live out the lives of the Romans. This is what Romans did, so you did what the Romans did. Um, and so therefore to break from these societal and sinful norms, this was newsworthy. This was something that people took notice of. So it'd be newsworthy. And then eventually this would lead to surprise and actually maligning, slander, mockery even. A friend of mine recently told me that he was talking with a coworker and it came up that he did not watch the TV show Game of Thrones. It's an immensely popular TV show right now. Game of Thrones, and it came up that he did not watch this TV show. And the reason why he didn't watch this TV show is because he seeks to honor the Lord with his mind, with what he takes in as far as entertainment goes. He wanted to honor the Lord with his eyes, with how he spends his time, because TV shows can become so addicting and immersive. And 
And this was just shocking for this coworker to find out that this young man did not watch the most popular TV show that's out there. And, and, and it would be for gospel reasons why he would not watch this TV show. It was even more surprising for this coworker to find out that my friend actually didn't even own a TV. For the very same reasons, because he desires to honor the Lord with his mind, with his eyes, with his time. It's not to say that you can't own it, that you, if you own a TV, you're in sin. I own a TV, but this person is, is arming himself with the mind of Christ and he's seeking to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to the Lord. And so for him, that means making hard sacrifices. And this is shocking to his coworker. He just can't fathom not watching these shows and not even owning a TV. You guys are so weird. And we know this feeling, right? This is the way that Christians are often dealt with. It is shocking and surprising and strange that we would spend our money the way that we do, that we would actually tithe, that we would give money away to the church when we could actually use that for vacations or for whatever it is that make us feel good. It's surprising that we would seek to wait and not have premarital sex, that we'd wait for marriage to enjoy sex where it's meant to be enjoyed rather than, than, uh, than sinning against the Lord by, by engaging in this beforehand. How in the world are you gonna know that you're compatible, right? The list can go on and on and on. The world looks at our way of living, lives where we seek to honor Christ and they go, that is strange, that is odd, that is surprising. And at best, it leads to a playful sort of mockery, like with my friend and his coworker. I can't believe that you do that. But often this leads to outright disdain. It leads to outright disdain. Any who would stand upon the truth of scripture and say that the practice of homosexuality is a sin, risk being labeled a hateful bigot. Any who would label abortion as wrong and murderous might be labeled a woman hater. Any who would seek to have the gospel and charity inform their view of immigration runs the risk of being labeled a liberal. And it goes on and on and on. As Christians, there are certain lines that we must draw in the sand and we will say, we will not cross this. And as a result, no matter how nice we are, no matter how gracious we are, no matter how charitable we are, we will be maligned for our faith. It is an inevitable consequence of following Christ. And Peter desires to prepare us for this. And so we're to be steadfast in arming ourselves with the mind of Christ, for we will be maligned. But the emphasis on this passage is not just on arming ourselves for we will be maligned, but the emphasis is actually upon judge, or on judgment. The sort of judgment that we endure as Christians is natural. This is what Christians naturally endure. But this judgment will not have the final say according to our passage. Verse five tells us that though they judge us for our fidelity to the gospel and to Christ, they will be judged by the one who judges the living and the dead. Here, Peter seeks to encourage us by reminding us that one day we will be vindicated. According to chapter two, our job as Christians is to submit to unjust suffering and live such lives that the gospel would be seen and proclaimed and believed. We're to live lives so that people look at our lives and they go, isn't Christ glorious? Isn't Christ satisfying? 
That way of living is so bizarre and so strange, but there's something attractive and beautiful about it. With our actions, our attitudes, and our words, we are to proclaim and herald the gospel wherever we go, that people might believe in Jesus. Here we see the just consequences of those who reject the gospel. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. In fact, that's, uh, it's because of this impending judgment that we get verse six, a very difficult passage. But because of this judgment, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that they might believe and live forever in the spirit with God. This passage isn't saying that the gospel is preached to those who are literally dead as if there is a second chance that people can have after they die to believe in Jesus. That's not what's being said here. Rather, because of this judgment that's coming, we preach the gospel to those who are alive, who at the time of this being written, at the time that this was written, they're now dead. So this was preached that they might believe while they're living, that they might live forever with God in the spirit. Peter wants us to know that in the midst of our battle, justice will be carried out. The evil being committed against us, no matter how big or small, will one day be reckoned with. And this is to encourage us. And because of this, we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. And so in 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6, we see the king speak. He instructs us and he tells us why he has given us this specific instruction. We are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We resolve to suffer for doing good. To close now, I'd like to transition. I'd like to do two things. One, I'd like to offer a final point of application. How do we develop the mind of Christ? How do we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ? And then I'd like for us to close um, by seeing one final result of arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. So first, how do we do this? One key way we develop the mind of Christ is by doing what you're doing right now. Come to church, participate in the church, be a part of a local congregation. Come to church, sit under the preach words, sing songs of praise, fill our minds with our glorious God. We pray with one another. We go to grace groups. We volunteer in the children's ministry at food bank, feeding the homeless once a month. We be a part of the local church. And by participating in the body of a church like Grace, by participating here at Grace, you will be forced to regularly remember Christ and his gospel. You'll regularly be called to hope in the finished work of Christ. You'll regularly have your eyes fixed on Christ. There are countless ways that we can develop the mind of Christ. We can arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We talked about spending time in the word earlier, immersing ourselves in the word, uh, rubbing shoulders with one another and learning the stories of grace as a way to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. There are lots and lots of clear ways. And these two, I think are specifically, or these two in particular, I think are clear. Still though, we are, off, we are often people who want impressive, surefire, or maybe even quick points of application but I'd like to simply offer you what I know to work. Go where God says that he will meet us. One of the key places that he will meet us is the local church. Come to church, dive into the church, immerse yourself in the church, participate here. And I believe that your mind will more and more be conformed to the image of Christ. You will develop the mind of Christ. It may not be quick. It may not be overnight, but if you continue to give yourselves to the church as you are today, then you will continue to rub shoulders with the saints of God. You will continue to sit under the word of God and this will happen. So 
Come to church, be a part of the church, invest in the church. And then, once again, to close, I'd like to offer us a final result of arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. What is the final result of doing this? Of everything we're talking about today, of arming ourselves in this way, what is the final result? Gain. Gain is the final result. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. This is but one verse that tells us the exact same thing all throughout scripture. Though our suffering is real and sometimes very terrible, and some of you know how terrible suffering can be on this, or in this life, the final result is gain. As bad as it gets, it could still be characterized as light and momentary. The light and momentary affliction that comes as a result of arming ourselves with the mind of Christ is producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. What is the final result of all of this? What's the final result of arming ourselves with the mind of Christ? It's that one day we will enter into glory and we will know that we have gained. I'd like for us now to move to a a time of prayer. We're gonna have just a few minutes And I'd like for you to consider this passage, consider the gospel, consider the command, the instruction of our king to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We're gonna take a few minutes, pray. Pray that the Lord would uniquely apply this. Think about your own life. Where do you need to be wrestling with this passage? And and we'll give you maybe four or five minutes, maybe a little bit longer, and I'll close with prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and gracious God. Lord, you not only reveal your desires for us, your people, but you make a way for us by your son. You have brought us back to yourself. In love, you sent your son to the cross that we might live, that we might have our sin dealt with, the power and the penalty of sin, that we might live to Christ. Lord, you have graciously given us your spirit and you have told us where to go. Help us, Lord. Father, I pray that you would uniquely apply this word to our hearts, to our lives, that you would direct us as we go from this place, as we seek to to love those who are around us in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our workplaces. Lord, I pray that you would arm us with the mind of Christ that by your spirit you would continually be bringing Christ to mind and continually allow us to put on Christ. Help us, Father, we need you. Lord, I thank you so much that you would gather your people together, that we might worship you today. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would cause us to love Christ, to hate sin, Mm -hmm. to believe in your promises. We worship you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.